0: poet and she has written many beautiful poems over the years and the lord put on her heart some words to do with september 11th that are very very beautiful she writes our flags were flying high that day with flare when some people came as only cowards would dare it was in their early dawn that these people came to do us harm without warning And no indication, they came to attack our beloved nation. From Tower 1 to Tower 2, they came to destroy and our peace undo. Screams were heard from the people inside. They did not know this was the day they would die. Heroes were made that day and tried with God's help to be saved. Many families are without their fathers, mothers, children, husbands, and wives. These are the ones who did not survive. Even through the terror, turmoil, and throng, we knew our flag was still standing strong. Our flag, which stands for honor and justice for all, gave us the courage to come forth to the call. Our flag is the symbol of us as a nation, and we stand under God as his own creation. Our flag is still here, honoring the living and remembering the brave. It will be here forever, and long may it wave. The song we're going to sing this morning is entitled, Our Flag Was Still There. From the first words scrawled by Francis Scott Key in the dim post-battle light of 1814, to the valiant struggle of six Marines to plant American colors on Iwo Jima, to the overpowering sight of New York firefighters raising the stars and stripes against the desolation of September 11th. The American flag has come to symbolize the faith of the American people. Our flag represents our extraordinary past, yet symbolizes the promise of the future. It flies from the tallest buildings and from the clenched fist of our smallest patriots. The same flag that is displayed on the lawn at the White House flies from thousands of small-town front porches. We wave it wildly in moments of celebration. We lower it to half-mast in our moments of grief, as in the case of September 11th. Yet through it all, our flag still flies. It still stands for freedom, and it still gives us hope for the future generations yet to come that there is strength for the journey. Yes, let's proclaim together our flag was still there.
1: Good morning. morning. Before we begin the study in Nehemiah, I have two items. The first one is in Revelation chapter 5. Verse 9. Revelation 5, 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Some people don't believe in the millennium, a literal millennium. I don't know what they do with a verse like this. We shall reign on the earth. What part of that can you not understand? But this is a memorial. Just like today, we remember what happened ten years ago. I remember uh, an old preacher who's with the Lord now telling me one time, don't sink the Titanic anymore. He said, the Titanic sank a long time ago, but it's gone down hundreds of times, hundreds and hundreds of times in gospel messages. where They remind people about what happened in the Titanic as an illustration of what happens to people who don't put their trust in Christ. Well, I think that today we have been remembering something else that's going to stand forever as long as we're down here as an illustration, isn't it? Tragedy has a way of fixing itself in our memory. And it can be put to good use by the Lord as long as we don't cultivate and try to uh, carry over from year to year feelings of bitterness. And we remember the parallels between what happened here, what happened in times like the Titanic, and what the Lord is saying here. He suffered for us. He laid down his life for us. And forever in heaven and the kingdom of God, there will be a memorial to what Jesus Christ did for us because his salvation is not just for a day or a lifetime but forever now one more item before we go into the book of Nehemiah and that is I want to read you a poem it's our way uh, Ruth my wife and myself it's our way of saying thanks to you for all of your prayers and support over the years that mean so much to us and we just want you to know how much we love you and how much we really appreciate knowing that there's a church that loves us and cares for us and we see it every month we know it all the time and we want you to know we pray for you too. This little poem is called Because You Prayed. Because you prayed uh, excuse me Barbara I didn't write this so I don't have the talent you have. This This was written by Charles Bowser, okay? Because you prayed, God touched our weary bodies with his power and gave us strength for many a trying hour, in which we might have faltered had not you, our intercessors, faithful been and true. Because you prayed, God touched our lips with coals from altar fire, gave spirit fullness, and did so inspire that when we spoke, sin-blinded souls did see, sin's chains were broken, captives were made free. Because you prayed, the dwellers in the dark have found the light, the glad good news has banished heathen night. The message of the cross, so long delayed, has brought them life at last, because you prayed. Thank you for your prayers. And now let's turn to the book of Nehemiah. We have work before us today because we have to finish a wall. We're in chapter 5, Nehemiah chapter 5. Dean, I'm still trying to figure out how you did this. You get your Bible to sit up here, and every time I put mine up here, it falls down. So I'm going to get you to tell me the secret later on. Nehemiah chapter 5, let's read from the beginning. The word of the Lord says, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were some that said, We, our sons, and our daughters are many, therefore we take up corn for them, that we may eat and live. Some also that there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy corn, because of the dearth or the famine. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, and our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards." And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, You exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen, and will you even sell your brethren?" Or shall they be sold unto us? Then they held their peace and found nothing to answer. Also I said, it is not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, this morning we come into your presence once again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks for him. We remember that he is the vine and we are the branches that separated from him. We can do nothing and are nothing. We are thankful for him. We are thankful for his constant, faithful friendship and help, for his protection and guidance who promised us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we lift up his name in praise and thanksgiving this morning, even as we have been remembering his great work on the cross for us at Calvary and how he lives and one day will reign, and we with him over all the earth. We look forward to his coming, and even as you taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is our prayer this morning, that your will would be done in our lives, that your word would touch our lives in a very practical and personal way. Guide us and bless us by your Holy Spirit, for we pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 When I read Nehemiah chapter 5, I remember Acts chapter 6. The first conflict that came into the apostolic church, the first internal conflict that came, came over financial questions. Money and the care, the daily distribution, uh, supplies, food, and, and the care of the widows. And a cry went out. People were not happy. And so they had to meet together and take action to solve this problem. And now here in Nehemiah chapter 5, we find the internal problems among the people of God. We saw in chapter 4 the external problems. The devil likes to attack from the outside, but he is always working and looking for a weak point or some place, something that he can exploit on the inside. And his whole focus, remember is to stop the work. This is what he's trying to do. And this comes out over and over again in these opening chapters of the book of Nehemiah. So he hasn't quit yet. Only now the focus is not on those who are outside, who have no part or inheritance in Israel. His focus is on those on the inside. And Nehemiah is going to get a surprise. Things are happening that he knew nothing about. In Acts chapter 20, this very pattern comes out in the New Testament. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the apostle says to the men who were the elders in the the church at Ephesus, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the flock, all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, shall grievous wolves come in, enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, next verse, 30, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He warned them. He wasn't going to see them again. And he said, now there are enemies outside who are like the wolves. They're going to come and attack from the outside. But he said, then from your own selves, and he's looking at these men, men who were in the leadership in the church at Ephesus. And he's looking at them and he says, from your own selves, some will arise. Did he know who they were? We don't know. But we know this, that because he walked in fellowship with God, the Lord had given him this knowledge. He also knew human nature. He also knew that from ancient times, even before creation, there was a great exalted being named Lucifer who was in a place, son of the morning, who was in a place of privilege and responsibility among the heavenly host who turned sour. And when he went away, he took sympathizers with him. Those sympathizers are called the fallen angels, and we have a much simpler name for them, don't we? Demons. The fallen angels, the angels who sympathized with Lucifer when he turned away. And so Paul says, in another place, we are not ignorant of his devices, of his strategies. We know how he works. He attacks from the outside like a wolf. He attacks from the inside. He tries to create discontent and cause problems in the midst, and have some turn away, and if possible, take others with them." This is the way he works, and so he's warning them. Well way back in Nehemiah's time, Nehemiah's learning without, of course, having the advantage of knowing this ahead of time, because the Apostle Paul's writings weren't available. But Nehemiah's finding out, isn't he? He comes to the city, he sees the rubbish. He comes to, be, to begin to work and, and make order out of all this, and he sees the enemies. And they're criticizing them. They're standing on the outside. And he's giving them the answer. Our God will work for us, therefore we will build the wall, but you have no lot or inheritance in Israel. And he begins the work. He marks clearly who's in and who's out and begins the work. But now he turns in chapter 5 to find that there are problems among the people of God. There was a great cry, and we have this in the first five verses, famine and financial hardship, verses 1 to 5, famine and financial hardship, a great cry, an outcry, and the word used here is to indicate to us intensity, it's not just a small complaint, and it came out like uh, in other places we read in the scripture, it says the cry has gone up even unto heaven, it was so loud or so intense that you couldn't help but notice it. Now, later on in the book of Nehemiah, there's another great cry, but it's a cry of triumph when they dedicate the wall, and they're marching around the wall, and it says they heard them. Their enemies heard them far away. They could hear them and were ashamed. But this great cry, and there are these among the people of God, there are times of anguish and difficulty. It happens. We live in a world filled with fallen people, sinners, some saved by the grace of God and some not yet but we hope they will be we still have the flesh in us and unfortunately the problem is that people can do what they want to this is a problem this is why the lord taught us to pray in matthew chapter 6 thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven why because only then will there be peace on earth it's not going to be brought by democracy It's going to be brought by the king of heaven. Only then when his kingdom comes and his will is done instantly, lovingly, joyfully, and completely, just like it is in heaven, then will this earth be a paradise. Well, until then, we have this to deal with, don't we? There was a great cry of the people and their wives against their brethren, the Jews. Now they're not talking about Sambalat and Tobiah and Jeshim, the Arab. They're talking about their own people. We got internal problems. What's the problem? And here we have it in verses 2 to 5. He brings out four complaints. Notice the first one. There's hunger. We, our sons, our daughters, are many, there's a lot of us, and we have to get corn for them. We have to get grain for them, food for them, that we may eat and live. We're not talking about luxury here. We're talking about having something to eat. We're talking about give us this day our daily bread. In verse 3, at the end of the verse, he he talks about famine. So this is the problem. There were a lot of needs, and there weren't many resources. And so he says, in verse 3, we had to mortgage our possessions, our lands, our vineyards, our houses. We mortgaged these things to buy food. We didn't mortgage these things for something we could get a return on. See, we, we put it all in the mortgage, and we took the money, and with that money, we bought food. We got nothing to show for it. There's no return on our investment and no way out. That's verse 3. Verse 4. And uh, some of them, they said, well, we borrowed to pay the king's taxes, the tribute. They had to pay a tribute to the king of Persia. And so he says, We borrowed money to do this. Some borrowed money against their homes, their lands, whatever they had. Others borrowed money, not just for food, but to pay the taxes. And when they paid that out, they had nothing. And some of them didn't even have that. Verse 5. Our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. What did he mean by that? Well, back in the book of Exodus, Exodus 21 and verse 2, and in the book of Leviticus, but let's read Exodus 21 two. It was foreseen that there would be at times among the people of God those who were in need, even extreme need. In Exodus 21 two, he says, "'Now if thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing.'" Why would you buy a Hebrew servant? Why would Hebrews buy Hebrews? Because it was such a situation of need and of extremity that in order for them to be able to live and to have what they needed every day, they, they gave themselves to be a household servant, not a slave in chains, but to be a servant in the household of another. And they served there and their wages were, they were given a place to live and something to eat and that's all they had. This is an old institution. But here it was benign. It was done to take care of needs. It wasn't done where you were the property of your master and had no rights whatsoever. It's not that kind of a thing. And you could have him for six years. And the seventh, you had to let him go and not let him go empty-handed. Leviticus 25 talks about the same thing. So the Lord foresaw that this situation would come about. But the problem here is the way it was handled in the days of Nehemiah. These people had already given up everything they had. They had no money. They had no food. They had mortgaged all of their properties. They borrowed money even to pay their taxes. And now their sons and daughters are working as servants in other households just to be able to make ends meet every month. And there was a provision given in the law to redeem the servant. If a person has given themselves in service, and servanthood to another family or household, someone, a family member, someone could redeem them by paying a price and then they would be free from their servanthood. He said, how can we do that? How can we get our sons and daughters back? Look, our pockets are empty. That land, that vineyard, I can't borrow against it because I borrowed against it already to buy food. Yeah, and I borrowed against mine to pay the king's tribute. They had nothing. They were in a, in a condition of bankruptcy and didn't know what to do. And apparently they weren't getting much help from their brethren. From there came the cry. Because not only had they borrowed and owed, but they owed interest. We're going to come to that in the following verses. You know I'm reminded when I read this of what Voltaire the French infidel said. He said a lot of things that he should be sorry for. One of them was, and this isn't the one I'm thinking of, but I do remember he said that when he was living, he said in a hundred years the Bible won't even exist as a book or be read anymore. When he died, the French Bible Society bought his home and they, and they put a printing press in it and used it to print Bibles. <laughs> so God has the last word, doesn't he? But Voltaire said something else that that is relevant to our chapter. When it comes to money, all men are of the same religion. I want to ask you a question. Is that true? Could someone, by looking at us, think that was true? Could they, by observing our behavior and the way we treat one another and what we do with our finances, think that's true? That we're Christians in here in the meeting, but out there in the bank accounts, that's a different matter. That what I do with my possessions is one thing, and my attendance to church meetings is something else. Is that what they would say? That like Voltaire, when it comes to religion, or when it comes to money, all men are of the same religion. Some are more religious than others, but when it comes to money, they're all on the same page. Is that it? So Nehemiah has to call a meeting, doesn't he? This is his solution. Verse 6. In verses 6 to 13, we're going to face his solution. And his solution begins, first of all, he has a reaction. Now he had a reaction in chapter 1, didn't he? When he heard what what the condition was of Jerusalem and the people, in chapter 1 it says, I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He had a reaction to the news. But he had a different reaction to this news. Equally important, because Ephesians 4, 26 says, Be angry without sinning, or be angry and sin not. In 1 Kings 8, 46, it speaks about the, the wrath of God, or the anger of God against the sin of the people. This is righteous anger. Righteous anger is against sin and the harm that it does to the people of God. The harm it does to the name of God and to the testimony of God. Nehemiah's angry, but he's not angry for anything done to him. This is usually why we get angry. You open the door, you bump your head, and you get mad. Well, maybe you don't, but I do. I'm not going to lie about it. That's not righteous anger. Selfish. Nehemiah became very angry, it says, when I heard their cry and these words, And then I called a meeting. No, it doesn't say that. Verse 7, what is the first thing he did? Very important. What is the first thing he did? I consulted or meditated with myself. He calmed down and thought about what the situation was and what he needed to say. Thought and prayer should precede speech and not follow it. James chapter 3 talks about the importance of the control of the tongue. It says there, the tongue no man can tame. Okay, that doesn't give you a right to say whatever you're thinking. And you say, oh, well, the tongue no man can tame, blah, 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 blah. No, it doesn't say that. It says no man, but it doesn't say God can't tame the tongue. And self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Or one, a part of the fruit, better said, of the Holy Spirit. God can tame the tongue. And one of the signs of a person who's under the control of the Holy Spirit is that even when they're angry, it's under control. I consulted with myself. I thought about it, he said. And then, what did he do? I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You exact usury. What is usury? Usury is charging interest. It was forbidden in the Old Testament. Forbidden in the law and the Pentateuch. It was forbidden for Jews to to charge interest to Jews, to their brothers. They could lend them money, but they couldn't charge them. They could charge interest to the heathen, to the Gentiles, but not to their own people. You're exacting usury, he says. Every one of his brother. And I called a great assembly against him. So this is the way he proceeded. First in private, and then in public. He met with them. He didn't send them a letter. These people here are great for sending letters. Have you noticed that? In chapter five and chapter six, letters, 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 letters. And I say today, emails, 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 text messages. He went up there and he looked them in the eye, face to face, and he said, This is the problem. This is the problem. Deal with it and get past it. Look at what a serious problem. Look how many people are involved. Look how delicate the issue is. Look at the cry of the people. And yet, Nehemiah, in the space of this chapter five, And remember, this is all within the context of the 52-day period in which they're building the wall. It didn't drag on and on for weeks and months and years. In that 52-day period, all of these things that came up, he met them, he solved them, he put them behind him, and they went on and built the wall. What did we say the other day? Do the work. Don't let anything get you away from doing the work. Turn aside from doing the work. There is no good excuse for not doing the work. A good reason why you didn't do something is not the same thing as having done it. And so, Nehemiah deals with him. I rebuke them, he said. Well, there are some nobles and rulers, even in our day, who think they can't be rebuked. John the Baptist got in trouble for rebuking Herod, didn't he? It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He put him in jail. And that's not the first time or the last time that's happened. When someone says, uh, don't come back even if you do repent, that's a mistake that should be corrected. How can you tell someone that if the Lord never told you that? Rulers, even in churches, are not infallible. And when a person makes a mistake, when a ruler or a noble in a government When a person, a leader of a family or group makes a mistake, he needs to be humble enough and honest enough to admit it and say that was wrong. Look, the fast and easy way out of any kind of conflict, personal conflict, is just to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's the fast and easy way out. But some people want to take the 40-year route. Do you have 40 years? Let me tell you this morning, God does, but I don't know if you do. You got 40 years to waste? Why not take the short route? I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Bend that proud head and admit it. Humble yourself and then you're out. Well, he rebuked the rulers. Well, it didn't start a war between them. I give these men credit for that. Whatever else had happened before and mistakes that they had made or maybe perhaps even selfish, prideful errors. But whatever it was, they got it solved and moved on. The other question you have to ask here is, how do these people get into doing all of this? Well, this happens even today, doesn't it? I don't see anywhere in here where it said anybody asked for any counsel. It doesn't say they had prayed about it or sought counsel. They just did it. Oh, we borrowed money for this. We paid our taxes with borrowed money. Did you talk to anybody about that before you did it? Well, sometimes that's the way it is in the church today. Talk to elders in any church. And they can tell you that some people, you only hear from them when they got the noose around their neck. Help, I'm about to hang, I'm dying. How did that noose get there? Who tied the knot? Who put it on you? How did all of this come about? Why weren't you around asking for counsel in prayer before then? What happened? Well, whatever happened, Nehemiah has to solve it. But let me just say, So many things can be avoided if you seek counsel and prayer before acting. So many things can be avoided. It is a shepherd and elder's nightmare to have to deal with people who only show up suddenly when the ship is sinking and it's the last hurrah, you know. (laughs) Stay close to those who are your spiritual guides. Be open and transparent with them. Seek their counsel and prayer. They can help you. They're not divine and they're not infallible, but they are appointed by God to care for his flock and they can help you. They have a book that gives instructions and you have that book and you can look in it together and pray to the same Lord and master for his help. Well, so Nehemiah comes in and he finds out and probably I say, because we're not told how how long this has been going on, but probably all of this had been happening before he ever got there. When he came, he knew the people were in reproach and the walls were down and the gates were burned with fire, but he didn't know about all of these other things that were going on. When he got there, he found out about Sambalad and Tobiah and Jeshim the Arab and all the others who were out there. And then as he began to deal with and work with the people and they're building the wall together, he begins to find out these other things. Boy, we got problems. I never knew this, I'm sure he could say, before he left the palace, that palace where he lived in such luxury and splendor in Persia. He never knew this was going on, but he's finding it out. So what is he going to do about it? Well, he thinks before speaking, and then he speaks to them face to face, face to face. This is not uh, sending letters or having secret informers. Well, I was told by someone, who told you that? Or I have a complaint, who told you that? Oh, I can't say is confidential. There's a place in Venice, Italy, where they have a lion's head on the side of a building where the governor lived, where they were allowed to put in secret complaints and inform against ones, against others. They didn't have to sign anything. They could just put it in, and the governor would take it, and he would look at it and read it, and then they would go arrest whoever it was. No trial, no evidence, no witnesses, no face-to-face, no face your accusers. Secret informers. A lot of backstabbing. In Spain, after the Civil War, people could say, oh, so-and-so, he was a a Republican in Spain, meant you were a communist. See, they had the Nationalists and the Republicans. The Republicans were from the Republic of Spain. And when they voted themselves, well, they won the election and, and took over the government, they were more liberal. And the Nationalists were more Roman Catholic and linked closely to the priests and the church. And so, when they call somebody a Republican back then, I know this sounds strange to you here in the United States, but that meant, you know, they were a red. And all you had to do was say it, write down, my neighbor is a red or Republican. And the civil guard, uh, like the paramilitary police, would show up. They would take them away. They'd come into a town and say, uh, we have a list here in the square. Like we'd like to talk to Fulano, Mengano, da 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 da. They name all the people. They put them in the back of a truck and drive off. You never see those people again. I had a man tell me, down here in this ravine ravine below our village, I saw 12 men shot to death when I was a young man. They were just taken by informants. They never knew who they were. They took them down there and shot them, and that was the end of the problem. This is not the way we deal with things. He comes face to face with them. He says, listen, this is what is being said. This is what is being said. Look at me, he says. Would you sell your brethren? We're here to redeem them. He's saying, I left the palace. I came here to help the people and build the city, and this is what I find. Will you sell your brethren? He said they held their peace. They had nothing to say because there was nothing to say in their defense. Well, you know, I credit them. Whatever else had happened before then, they didn't argue they knew when it was wrong and they just they didn't try to answer and carry on a long debate it is not good he says in verse 9 not good what you're doing shouldn't you walk in the fear of the lord because of the heathen around us he said look people are looking at us we're saying we're god's holy city we're saying we're god's people we built the temple here this is a testimony people are watching us what are they going to say they tell the story in a, a certain city, a preacher got on the bus. This was years ago. He got on the bus to go from one side of the city to the other. He was in the city having gospel meetings, preaching the gospel. He got on the bus. He paid his fare. He got too much change. The, the, the bus driver apparently made a mistake in the change, and he walked back you know, with everybody else and got in his place in the back of the bus, and, and he's counting his change, and he realized that he had too much change. Well, by then, there were people in the aisle in the bus in front of him, so he had to excuse himself and get back up to the front slowly. Two or three stops later, he makes it up to the front of the bus, and he says to the driver, excuse me, you gave me too much change. And he gives it back to him. He said, I did it on purpose. He said, I know you're preaching every night over in such and such a church. He said, I gave it to you on purpose to see what you would do. Now, suppose he had just put it in his pocket and said, Oh, well, the Lord knew I needed a little extra cash today. And oh, they probably cheat other people, so this evens the score. He could have said anything. Because of the heathen, your testimony. Voltaire said, when it comes to money, all men are of the same religion. We have to prove him wrong. And so he's dealing with them. And he reprimands them. And then he calls a public meeting. He speaks to them first, face to face. Why does he call a public meeting? Because of the people. Look back at verse 1. A great cry of the people and their wives against their brethren. This is something that has infected the people. So he has to call a meeting. You don't always like to do this, but sometimes you have to do it. And you have to straighten things out. And this is what he did. He called a meeting. He said, now, in front of the people, you need to restore what you took away. This is not right. What is he trying to do? Build up confidence in the people again, and encourage them so they'll get back to doing what? Building the wall. Building the wall. This is what he's aiming at. He says, leave off this usury, verse 10. Verse 11, restore their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, their houses, and the hundredth part of the money, the corn, the wine, the oil that you did exact to them. Restore it. Stop doing this and give back what you took that you shouldn't have taken. And what did they say? Ah, oh, well, that's your opinion. Everybody has their own opinion. You're entitled to yours, but blah, blah, blah. no, they didn't do that. i got to hand it to them. This is a public meeting. They could have been all concerned about their image and, and all proudful. But they said, what did they say? In verse 12, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So then he does one more thing. He calls the priests and he takes an oath. He makes them promise in public before the people that it is indeed going to be this way. And the priests are there uh, like like the witnesses of God, on the part of God, to what is being said. This makes this situation holy. The priests are hearing the oath of the people that this is what they're going to do, that they'll do according to his promise. And then he shook out his robes, his tunic, and he said, May God do this to everyone who doesn't do what he promised to do. May be shaken out and emptied. And the people said, Amen. Verse 12, verse 13. They praise the Lord. And then it says, And the people did according to the promise. Prompt obedience. A long time ago from a man of God who's now with the Lord, I learned this lesson. Obedience means now. Obedience means Amen. now. Amen. Parents need to teach their children that. And older people need to set an example before younger people of that. All of us need that in our relationship with the Lord. When you see something in the Word of God that it says for you to do, don't go pray about it. Don't say, I'm going to pray about it and think about it. Just do it. Obedience means now. When we know what the Lord wants us to do, it is not time for prayer, procrastination, waiting for the right opportunity, blah, blah, blah. Just do it. Obedience means now. And this is what they did. And this is how they got over that problem. They never would have gotten over it if this had not happened. And so I credit them, these men, whatever else they had done wrong. And you see that. Sometimes it gets into us, doesn't it? Self-love, love love of money, uh, people who have more, uh, not appreciating people who have less and not wanting to help them or taking advantage of them. They lose their property, so you buy it up at a cheap price. And Nehemiah points out how he didn't do this. Verses 14 to 19, his personal example. Now he's talking to two groups. He's talking to the leaders who didn't follow his example, and he's talking to the people, showing them that he's on top of this. He said, look, look, what is my example? I didn't eat the governor's food, verses 14 and 15. Why not? I didn't take taxes from you to feed my household. Why not? Verse 15 at the end, because of the fear of God, Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning. Some people haven't taken the first step yet. The fear of the Lord is not an accessory or something you add to that helps you have a little more wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the first step. The fear of the Lord is the first step. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the ABCs of wisdom. The building blocks. The foundation. The first step in the trip. I did this because of the fear of God. God is watching. God sees us. He hears us. Didn't Abraham's servant say that when the Lord answered her prayer? Thou, God, seest me. You are the God who sees me. Didn't she say that, Hagar? Don't we need to remember that? Wherever we are, whatever we do, don't we need to remember and have this govern always our behavior? Because other people are not always looking at us. Other people don't always know what's going on in our lives. But the Lord does. You are the God who sees the fear of God. I did this because of the fear of God. I didn't do it to stay on good terms with the people. I guarantee you. He did stay on good terms with the people because of what he did. But that wasn't why he did it. Nehemiah was not a politician. He was a servant of the Most High God. And I continued in the work of the wall, verse 16. More example. He worked, he rolled up his sleeves. I continued the work. What did we say the other night? What is the most important thing? Do the work, do the work, do the work. He saw the problem and he rolled up his sleeves and he went back to the work. He's the governor. He doesn't have to do the work. He's out there with the rest of them doing it. It's his example. Verse 17 and 18, he tells us. All that he spent, he had over 150, he had 150 that he counted that came into his house to eat every day because he was the governor. One and another and it added up the whole multitude, his responsibility, 150, plus the heathen that were around him. There were others, maybe servants, maybe people who were visiting, who were favorable to the work that was going on. He fed them too. He said, you know what? That came out of my pocket. That came out of my pocket. He didn't do it and then write a bill and send it to the king and say, give me this or to the people, reimburse me for this. That came out of his pocket. Why did he do that? Boy, I think about the New Testament where it says, use hospitality without begrudging it. I think it's the Phillips translation that says, use hospitality or be hospitable without secretly wishing you didn't have to. It's attitude. He's serving the people. And he says at the end, his prayer in verse 19, think upon me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. His prayer that the Lord will remember. And what does Hebrews 6.10 say? God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. He's not unrighteous. He knows what we have done. Nothing is spent or used or given in vain before the God who sees all. You are the God who sees. I did it for the fear of God. I did it for the love of the Lord. I did it for the love of his people. All of those motives rolled into one. And this is why we have a man like Nehemiah serving the Lord. Think upon me, my God, for good. But I think about the Lord Jesus when I read this verse. And there are so many points. We haven't had time to go into that in this series. There are so many points that coincide between Nehemiah and our Lord. So many parallels. Think upon me for the good I did for this people. Didn't we do that this morning? Didn't we remember the Lord Jesus Christ for the good that he did to us? And won't we do it for all eternity? He left that palace in heaven. He came down to this earth. He suffered and bled and died. He rose again and he went back to heaven. And look what he's done. Look what he's done for us. Look how he's changed our lives. Think upon him for good. They do in heaven. We saw it in Revelation 5. They praise Him for all eternity, and we should do the same. Now we come to chapter six and we have the final challenges of the enemy. We could say this is the gold line stand of the enemy. They're trying to stop that wall from being built, but they're backed up again. They're in the red zone and they can't they don't know how to get out of it. They can't. What brings all of this about in chapter six? Look at it, verse one. Now it came to pass when Sambalat and Tobiah and Jeshim the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. Then they said, Now they're going to start with their tricks and their treachery again. Why? Because they're looking at what? They're looking at the wall. I I imagine that when they heard this great cry, and, you know, word gets around, they knew, and they said, oh, look, they're going to implode now. Look at them. They're fighting among themselves. They got over it. They were God's people, they got over it, and they got back out there, and the wall went up, and now they're ready to hang the gates, and they're saying, oh, no. We got to do something. So what do they try? They try an ambush in the first four verses. They tried to deceive him and to go into a place of of ambush, and we call this, they wanted to have the conferences of Ono. Let's go have a conference. Let's go consult together. In one of the cities of Ono, which was a region nearby, they said, let us go and uh, have a conference together. Let's go and have some dialogue. But what does it say? The end of verse 2. But, a word that marks contrast, but, this is what they said. But what do they have in their heart? Oh, they did not want to have a meeting and all. No, they want to get me in there and shut the doors. And that's going to be the end of that. Or like when the Jews wanted to take Paul, the Apostle Paul, and they wanted to bring him from Caesarea. They wanted to bring him back to Jerusalem to be judged. They said, send him back to Jerusalem to be judged by the Sanhedrin, and we'll put an ambush on the highway and we'll kill him. And they had those men that took a vow that they wouldn't eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Ah, well, I guess they died of starvation because they never got him. This is what they're trying to do. Come out here. Leave the city. Leave the workers. Leave the wall. What does the devil do with us? Leave the church. Go out there. Just meet in your home. Just go out. I can worship God on the mountaintop. Yeah, you can. But the Lord said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. He says in Hebrews chapter 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the custom of some. The Lord wants his people to meet together. They were committed, they were continually devoted to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. You can't have that by yourself. And the breaking of bread and prayers, they're together. So what is the devil trying to do? Oh, come out here and meet with us. You know, we're going to have a little um, private meeting And everybody was going to have a stick or a sword except Nehemiah. They were going to finish him off. They thought to do me mischief. But Nehemiah is a spiritual man. And being spiritually minded doesn't mean you have to be naive. He's not naive. He knows the nature and the intentions of these people. It's very clear by now what their goal is, is to stop the work. And so he gives them this wonderful answer in verse 3. He didn't go to them personally. He sent messengers. They sent messengers to him. He sent a messenger back to them. No, I'm not going. I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? He's putting the dagger in and twisting it a little bit because the thing they hate is not so much the presence of these Jews there. It's the work. It's the wall being built. It's the work. We kept saying that the other day. It's 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 the work. It's the work. It's the work. And so he mentions it twice. He says, oh, I'm doing a great work. It's a great work. Why should I leave the work and go to you? Didn't I tell you? It's like he's saying in chapter 2, didn't I tell you? You don't have any part in this. God will help us. We'll build the wall, but you don't have any part in this. Why am I going to leave the work? I came here to do a work. I'm not going to be sidetracked or turned aside from doing it. I can't leave the work. Why should I do that? What did they tell the Lord Jesus when he was on the cross? Another parallel. Come down from the cross and we'll believe. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Come down from the cross and we'll believe. What could he have said? Well, these are wonderful words, aren't they? He could have said in the words of Nehemiah, I'm doing a great work. I'm not going to leave the cross. I'm not going to come down from the cross. He could have come down from the cross. If he'd come down from the cross, we wouldn't know each other. We wouldn't be sitting here today. We wouldn't be saved. There would be no salvation. Humanity would be lost and without any hope. But he stayed on the cross, and he finished the work, and he said it at the end. I finished. It is finished, he said. He cried it out. It is finished. He stayed until he finished what his father sent him to do. And I love these words. But you know they apply to us also, not just to the work of our Lord on the cross. In Colossians 4, 17, the Apostle Paul wrote and he said to a certain man, Finish your ministry. Fulfill thy ministry. Fulfill thy ministry. See it through to the end. Don't be a quitter. God gave you a work to do, do it. And he had to remind him. Sometimes we need those reminders. You fell down, get up. You fell off the horse, get back on it. You got distracted from the work, and get back to it. Build the wall. So he says, they sent to me four times, verse 4, and every time I gave him the same answer. He's unswerving. He perseveres. They're trying one time, two times, three times, four times, and in verse 5 it says the fifth time. Now they send him an open letter. Now they're trying another angle. In verse 5 we have false accusation, verses 5 to 9. Now he's accusing him with this open letter, still trying to get him to come to the plains of Ono, but now he says, well, but you really need to come Because, you know, the people say, you know, it's being said out there, I heard that, um, he didn't say who said it, you know, my secret informers, or in this case, probably my imaginary informers, you know, they're saying you have them building the wall because you're planning to rebel and make yourself a king. Is this ignorance or what? Do they not know who Nehemiah is? Look, Zerubbabel, when he came back in the first return, he was from the royal lineage. Ezra, when he came back, he was of the priestly lineage. But when Nehemiah came back, Nehemiah was neither royal nor priestly. He was just one of the common people. He's not going to be a king of the Jews. He couldn't be a king of the Jews. He's not from the family of David. Oh, you're going to make yourself a king. And if Nehemiah had lived in our times, he would have just said baloney. Not true. Verse 8 and 9. No such things. No such things, he says. You feign them or you invent them out of your own heart. Verse 9, why do they do that? They made us afraid. That's what they're trying to do. So their hands will be weakened and the work will not be done. Remember, the enemy has it very clear what he's trying to do. So you and I need to have it very clear what we're supposed to be doing and do it, because they got it very clear. They know what they're aiming at, and they have a lot of different tactics, but their goal is one. And so we have to remember, do the work. This is what they want to stop. That it be not done. So he prays, and he says, Oh Lord, strengthen my hands. They're trying to weaken our hands. Oh Lord, strengthen our hands. You see that at the end of chapter 5, he prayed. Here in chapter 6, he prayed. Every time anything happened, Nehemiah prayed. He didn't wait until he got his back up against the wall. It wasn't a desperation prayer. He was in constant prayer about everything that came up in his life. So now they try fear and imprudence. In verses 10 to 14, fear and imprudence. They try to move him, scare him into doing something imprudent. They say, well, you know, they're going to attack you. I have the word. You know, I got, I got the word from somebody. I found this out. I just want to tell you, they're coming after you, and they're going to kill you. They're going to do you harm. Come into the temple with me. Let's go into the temple and shut the doors. Now, how could he do that? He's a common man. He's not a priest. If he goes into the temple fearing for his own life and shuts the doors, he brings shame upon himself. They're not allowed to do that. They can't go and hide inside the temple. But besides that, Nehemiah says, why should a man such as I do that? Why should I run? How did I get here? I was in the king's palace. How did I get here? Who brought me here? Who made all of this possible? Is he not going to take care of me? He's confident that the Lord is going to take care of him. He's not easily frightened. And some of us are too easily frightened. Some of us can be scared away or discouraged with mere words. I said it before and I'll say it again. If the devil gets you to quit just by saying something, he got you cheap. Just words. They're just words. Nehemiah sidesteps the apparent threat, which really was nothing. He says in verse 12 that he knew that God had not sent them. I perceived. He had discernment, spiritual discernment. How did he have that? Well, he had it in part by experience, but he had it because he's walking in fellowship with the Lord. He had the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. And because he's walking in fellowship with the Lord, he's aware of these things when they come. God had not sent him. He pronounced this prophecy against me. For Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. Aha! What did they say about him? Oh, we heard the people said you're building the wall to rebel and that you hired prophets to go out and say there's a king among us and you're going to be a king. They accused him of hiring prophets, which he didn't do. Funny how that works. Why would they think of hiring prophets? Well, it's because what they did. They're the ones who are the guilty parties. They hired this, this fellow to go and say that. He was hired, verse 13, so that I should be afraid and do so and sin that they might have a matter for an evil report that they might reproach me. This is what the devil's trying to do. Get you to be imprudent. Through fear, through selfishness, whatever it might be, misplaced love, whatever it might be, get you into an imprudent situation where you commit something that you'd be ashamed of, and then he's not ever going to let you up. The devil, once he gets you to sin, he never forgives. Remember that. The devil never forgives. He'll keep that against you the rest of your life. He'll remind you even after God has forgiven you, even after other people forgive. But the devil keeps it up. He's the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12 says, who accuses him day and night before God. He wouldn't let him up. He's wise. He's not going to believe in Micah. In the book of Micah, he talks about the prophets, the judges who judge for money, the priests who serve for money, the prophets who prophesy for money. But he's not one of them. He's not one of them. Think upon them, he says. Another prayer, verse 14. Think upon them. Remember what they're doing, Lord. Deal with them, he's saying. He commits it all to the Lord in prayer. And then we come to those wonderful words in verses 15 and 16. Finished. We went through deception and ambush, false accusation, fear, and trying to cause him to fall into sin, but he sidesteps all of these final tactics, and he says, so the wall was finished. The 25th day of the month, Elul, Elul, I don't know how you say it, we would say Elul in Spain, it corresponds to September, to August-September, the six months of the Hebrew year in 52 days. They finished the work. Fifty-two days. What hadn't been done in 150 years? They did it in 52 days because the people had a mind to work, because God sent a man who kept his eye on the goal, he solved the problems, he dealt with them, he prayed every time anything happened, and above all, he did the work. He did the work. He did the work. The stones aren't going to go up by themselves. People have to do the work. God will bless the work, But we are his servants. We have to do it. He can't bless it if we're not doing it. And so this is what's happening. We did the work. We finished the wall, he says. And it came to pass when our enemy saw it. Look at the effect it had on them in verse 16. Look at the effect it had on them. They were much cast down or discouraged or some versions say disheartened. For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. They recognized this was God's work because it got done. So what's the answer to the enemies, to the detractors, to the critics, to the whiners and complainers? What is the answer? Do I have to tell you again? Somebody tell me. What's the answer? Finish the work. Do the work. That's the answer. That wall built, those gates hung, that's the work. They can see it. There's your answer. There's your answer. Do something with that. Criticize that assimilate that that's the answer the work finished the lord jesus christ said i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it we're in that work with him we're his workmen we are workers together with god he's given us a task to do not tear down the church not destroy the church build the church well they end up with propaganda here at the end Verses 17 to 19, the propaganda. Here it comes again, the multiplied correspondence. It's all because of verse 18, an unequal yoke. This fellow mentioned here in verse 18, He was the son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Aaron. His son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. You say, so what? Who's that? Go back to chapter 3 and verse 4. Look at the builders on the wall. Near the end of verse 4, it says, uh, Next to them repaired Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. He's one of the workers on the wall. But they had been careless and disobedient regarding an old instruction that came from the Lord when the people came out of Egypt. You will not take their daughters for your sons to be wives, nor will you give your daughters to their sons to be wives. You see? The parents had a say in it. I know that's not popular in America where people say, well, you're 18, you know, according to the law, you can do whatever you want to. God told the parents, you will not give or take. They had something to do with it. You will not give or take. But they did it. They were intermarrying with the heathen that lived around them. And this caused untold problems. And our next visit, Lord willing, We get into the part about the people and restoring the people. We're going to see all of these problems that were there because of marrying with people who were not of the household of God. So they're doing publicity, trying to build up Tobiah as if he's some godly man. And what's their point? They're doing it to intimidate Nehemiah. Because the wall's built and they're afraid that Nehemiah might say something to Tobiah and so they're all trying to build it. Oh, he's really a good man. You know, he's done a lot of good to a lot of people. Blah, 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 blah. Tobiah didn't build the wall. In fact, he tried to stop it from being built. Let us not forget that. So I want to close with this. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, we're told that the church is the temple of God. And we have the choice of building or destroying or defiling the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Know ye not, he's speaking to the Corinthians, to the church in Corinth, know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile or ruin or destroy the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You know, I think about that. He said that to Corinth. (laughs) What do you know about the church in Corinth? As we would say in Spain, de la marinera. They were really a rough crowd. They had all kinds of problems. The the book of 1 Corinthians is a corrective epistle written to correct all the problems they had there. He says, you, with all of your problems, you are the temple of God. God dwells in the church. You're his dwelling place. You are the temple of God, he tells him. Now, you can either build it, or you can defile it or try to ruin it. If you build it, you'll have a reward. But the one who defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy this is a warning to people whose net effect on the church is to discourage it and and bring its testimony down people who create divisions people who do like lucifer and leave and take people with them look don't think it's just here i'm not even thinking about that i've been by the grace of god in a few countries and a few churches around the world the devil fishes with the same bait everywhere because it always works. He always catches what he wants with that same old bait. It works in every country, in every culture around the world because it seems like we never learn. Well, let's learn today. Let's learn today. There's a great work God is trying to do. He's building the church. He's not just trying, he's doing it. The question is whether we will participate with him in it or not. He's building the walls of testimony, of protection, of separation from the world. He's building, and he wants us to participate with him and to do the work. May the Lord help us to roll up our sleeves and to get busy with our heavenly Nehemiah and follow him in the building of his church. Amen. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Our heavenly Father, we give thanks for this wonderful lesson that we have, these lessons from your word. We pray that they would indeed find their way, not just into our ears and our minds, but into our hearts, and that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. We thank you for this time that we have had together a fellowship. May we be strengthened by it, and may we live to do your will and glorify your name. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.